when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to So That Happened, the HuffPost politics podcast about things that transpired this week in politics. And it was another tumultuous Donald Trump sort of week. I'm Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague and our White House correspondent, S.V. Date. Hey, Arthur. And the chief of the Washington, D.C. HuffPost Bureau, Amanda Turkle. Hello. So... Donald Trump continues to do odd things, at least when you consider the fact that he's a Republican. He had dinner with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and apparently over Chinese food, struck a deal. The art of the deal? Is that is that what's going on, Sharish? Well, because um. <laughs> it, it seems like a stupid deal, right? It's It looks stupid. Let's... Let's wait on this and see what uh, what he's saying about it tomorrow or next Tuesday. Because with Donald Trump, what he says today may not be really operable this afternoon necessarily. And we know this now because we've watched him carefully for the last couple of years. Well, let's go over a chronology of what happened. Last night, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic leaders in Congress, said, we have a deal to not deport the uh, people who came here as children of undocumented immigrants. That's right, 800,000 of them. And the uh, the president, I guess, the White House immediately put out a statement saying there's no deal, actually. This is something that we're talking about. That was last night through the, uh, through the uh, press secretary. And then this morning, the president himself weighed in. Maybe he saw something on TV that maybe he was being criticized by people on the, on the, uh, the anti-immigration groups. Um, so then he... <laughs> saw fit to add his own tweets. And I think you have them there, right? He said this morning, or he said on Thursday morning, you know, whatever morning the listener's on, (laughs) it's Thursday. (laughs) On Thursday morning, Donald Trump said no deal was made last night on DACA. Massive border security would be agreed to in exchange for consent would be subject to vote. Now, he's adding his two cents. (laughs) Would be subject to vote? Right. We know. (laughs) Uh, So so it's a way of uh, making... There's a little dissonance there, but really he's not uh, refuting the, the terms of the deal and, and as a Democrats explained. A couple of tweets later, I believe, he actually spelled out that uh, the wall will come later. And then he, <laughs> said, he, he wrote, does anybody really want to throw out good, educated, accomplished young people who have jobs, some serving in the military? Really? Right. And he said something, too, about I mean, it was it was like classic language used by immigration advocates uh, saying, you know, these kids were brought here through no fault of their own. They can't just be sent back. I mean, again, he sounded like an immigration advocate there. But I think Sharish is right. You can't necessarily trust him right now. It looks like Democrats are probably going to get what they want from him. I think Democrats knew that they might have to swallow some border security measures some border enforcement short of 
giving him money for his wall in order to get DACA through. Uh, so, so right now, uh, you know, Rep- Republicans and conservatives are pretty mad because once again, it looks like he's just cozying up to Chuck, his, Chuck and Nancy, as he likes to call them. And Breitbart <laughs> had a headline that said "Amnesty Don," so they're they're mad too. Right. And it's important to remember here that the thing that he promised during his campaign, maybe the only thing that many of the people who voted for him really care about, was building the wall and deporting the illegals, as they say, right? And so now he's immediately, as Amanda says, earning headlines like Amnesty Don. I talked to some of the anti-immigration groups last week, and they were already mad. They were saying he's, <laughs> right. he's, he's going back on his word. He promised this one thing, and now he's going, he's, we can't trust him, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, does that get to him in the next week? I don't know. He's changed his mind so much on so many things that why should this be any different? He has consistently said nice things about dreamers. Uh, hasn't he? He has said nice things about them as individuals and as a group, but then he said, but they've got to go. They've got to go. You know, they came here illegally. They've got to go. He actually said that. He actually promised in a speech in August of 2016. Right, and his executive order puts them in jeopardy. So the trouble for any sort of agreement between Trump and Democrats in Congress is that Democrats don't control Congress. It'll be up to Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell what actually gets voted on. So... I wonder, though, does having Trump align with Democrats actually make this easier for Republicans in a sense because they themselves are in a tough spot on dreamers? They themselves are saying they don't want to end DACA and deport 800,000 people potentially. So does this make it easier for them, you know, let the right-wing base go nuts over their enemies while they're sort of stuck in the middle and then this thing gets passed, they blame it on President Trump and Democrats, even right. though they wanted it anyway. Well, I think Mitch McConnell can do that. It does make life easier for him because he's very secure in, in, in that job, which he likes very much. Paul Ryan, on the other hand, that group of 30 or 35 or whatever it is can uh, end his speakership. The House Freedom Caucus. Exactly. Yeah. And so at that point, it's, it's almost like Paul Ryan would need the Democrats – in order to remain speaker. I mean, that's kind of a dangerous spot to be in. So I I don't know if it makes life any easier for him. Now, DACA was not the only heterodox move Trump made this week. He also said that under tax reform, which is the top priority for Republicans for the remainder of the year, rich people wouldn't benefit at all. In fact, they may pay more, right? Isn't that what he said? Right. He said, quote, the rich will not be gaining at all and that, if anything, they could wind up paying more. That last part I didn't quote directly, but that's what he said. Right. Now. Which is what he said during the campaign once in a while. Right. But which is utterly negated by every other utterance by any Republican at any time. Including uh, the president himself. Yes, that is correct. And every not just utterance, but everything they've put down on paper. The Which isn't much, at the, least that we've in seen. In fact, it seems like the entire point of tax reform – Contrary to everything you heard in <laughs> politics about poor people being, you know, in populism, is that you need to reduce taxes on rich people, which, you know, if you're reforming taxes, those are the ones who pay most taxes. Right. Right. And the, and the way that they, you know, there aren't a lot of specifics yet, but the way that they often talk about paying for these tax cuts so rich people don't have to pay as much is through closing some loopholes like the mortgage deduction that 
normal people know and normal people take advantage of. Uh, and, you know, I think I think some Republicans are starting to realize that might not be a good look for them. <laughs> now, now, there is no theoretical way, though, in which you can reconcile Trump's statement with anything they've said. Like, it's it's not right. like DACA no, where you could imagine it happening. It, it actually yeah. is just nonsense right. in this instance. Absolutely. One thousand percent nonsense, because the one thing that Republicans, including Donald Trump in this instance, are insisting upon is lowering the corporate rate, the, mm-hmm. the corporate tax rate paid by everything from your uh, dry cleaner to you know uh, General Motors down to a maximum of 15%. Now, who do you think owns these large companies and small companies? It's generally people who are well-to-do, upper I- middle class and above. And <laughs> This would be a massive tax cut for them. I want to say something to reassure listeners who may think that tax reform is like a difficult or opaque or dense topic. It's uh, not your fault if you don't understand <laughs> or have any idea what they want to do because to this point, they have actually not revealed uh, most details of their plan. Even basic things like what would the tax rate be for Correct. the richest right. corporations and people? It's a mystery. Right. And they could do anything uh, within – or almost anything within the parameters that they've set. I mean they've mentioned a few things, including one this week that was pretty shocking uh, in the context of the, the general thrust of what they wanted. What, what was that, Sharish? You yeah, right. I mean, it, was at, uh, it was at an event uh, in the middle of the week and uh, the president's legislative director, Mark Short, laid out that, yeah, our goal is a 15 percent corporate rate and we want to extend that rate – to what he called small businesses. Now, I asked specifically, what do you mean by that? Do you mean S-Corps, LLCs, partnerships, all these these terms of art that are out there in, in the tax world that mean a specific thing? And in this case, he said, yes, we would extend that rate to these, these entities. And um, you know who has a lot of those? That would be Donald J. Trump, President <laughs> of the United States. And I went through his financial disclosure form and found that um, – he had a half billion dollars in income stated on his form for uh, the year that ended in April. Now, if we cut that rate from the maximum individual rate, which presumably is what he pays, down to 15%, he personally would save $125 million a year, every year, if this thing goes forward and they do what they want to that, do. That, given the you know, rampant corruption of the Trump administration, which you know, family and friends are constantly appearing to profit personally from. Well, not, not just government. appearing to profit. They I mean, are literally actually pro- literally profit. It could be right. that, yeah. that, that Mark Short, Trump's Congress guy, likes this because Trump himself is like, yeah. Well, good for me. I, I, I'm not sure that's the case. Maybe Mark Short came from the the, the Koch brothers world before. This, well, what, right? so, what so what did what did the other people who are supposedly doing tax reform? They're doing this not in hearings. They're doing it in rooms together. What did the other people involved in tax reform, the members of Congress, have to say about this uh, factoid that came from Mark Short? Well, it there's been a group of folks who do want to extend that rate down to these. Uh, Small businesses and small businesses, again, doesn't necessarily mean they're not profitable businesses. I mean, uh, maybe your neighborhood florist is an actual small business and maybe they're only clearing thirty or forty or fifty thousand a year from that business. But it also includes major lobby shops, major law firms are often partnerships and LLC. So it, just because it's called small 
don't think it's not rich because many of these things are, as our president has shown. So what this would do if it actually lowered the rate down to the corporate maximum 15%, everyone and his brother would suddenly incorporate themselves as a subchapter S corporation because your rate would be de minimis compared to what you're paying now. On top of that, you don't have to pay often. Uh, Social Security tax. So affected industries flipped out when they heard this. It was a big deal. Oh, it's huge for them. Absolutely. But, you know, I think you and I should look into becoming contractors for Verizon (laughs) and paying a lot less in taxes. (laughs) There are a couple other interesting tax reform factoids that might be helpful. One thing they have said is they want to double the the size of the standard deduction, which currently allows a household to say – to take away $12,000 worth of their income. So you subtract that income from what you owe – from what you've earned, then what you owe will be less because it's based on this smaller amount. Right. So they say they want to double that, but they don't say what they want to do with a, a personal exemption that gives you that reduces your taxable income by four thousand dollars for each person in your family. So if you do those two things, if they got rid of that personal exemption, which they have proposed doing in the past, tax reform could actually result in a higher tax bill for a middle class family. That is that is correct. But there's so many questions in this that we have no idea what they're going to do. I mean, they're talking about getting rid of the deduction for state and local taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, okay, go for it. Let's see how far that gets you in, in even in a Republican-controlled House. I, I just think it's incredible that in the wake of the supposedly populist election, I, you know, I call it supposedly because <laughs> I don't really think it was populist. No, I don't know if I, you can tell. I, I, yeah. <laughs> This is an amazingly plutocratic policy agenda in which they're skirting the possibility of hiking taxes on middle class people. Right. And it will be, you know, it, it, what will be interesting is if Democrats and Trump opponents can highlight that. Because what's troubling so far is that Trump is trying to win over some more moderate Democrats like Heidi Heitkamp, like Joe Manchin. And there's indications that they're going to play ball with him, that they're going to try to cut a deal uh, and maybe go along with what he wants. He, he had some of them over for dinner yes. this week as well. And he, he went to High Camp State, gave a speech on tax reform. Um, and right now, I think so far, Democrats have been pretty unified in standing up to Trump, uh, but they could break when it comes to tax reform. And it will be interesting then to see, you know, Chuck Schumer right now is getting very good reviews from people for what he's been doing with Trump but that could that could end depending on where he comes down you know because he's trying to balance the Bernie Sanders and the Joe Manchins of his party. He's cutting deals with the president. It, yes. So it's, and Democrats in the base are happy as long as they look good for them but right. as soon as they're not. I I might toss a little bit of caution into cutting deals with. I think if they get a deal that they think is good for their party and good for uh, their constituents, yeah, I think they they'll will be do fine. That. Yeah. I do think a side benefit to whatever may or may not come out of this is that it messes with the Republican Party. Having Chuck and Nancy at the White House Mm -hmm. with no other Republican lawmakers at all, and the only Republican in the room ostensibly is the President of the United States who – you know the the press secretary yesterday uh, had to say, oh, yes, he is a Republican a couple of times to remind people that this is the case. That's a good day for Chuck and Nancy to right. mess with the Republican Party the way they're doing right now. And, and we've heard Democrats that, trolling. Yeah, exactly. and we've heard and, – and Trump I think is doing a bit of his own trolling with Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan who he doesn't particularly like. I mean you know, 
Trump has said that he is excited. You know, he's indicated that he's really happy and excited about the headlines he got when he made the deal, the debt deal with Democrats. You know, it's positive press that Trump is finally getting, although maybe not in the conservative media. Uh, but Trump likes that. He doesn't get a lot of positive press. And so I think he sees an opening to do more things. And, you know, Chuck Schumer and Donald Trump of, you know, the the leaders in Congress, they're the most alike. They they get each other a little bit more. New York guys with with that hair. And that's Who the, like press and right, like publicity. That, that is the absolute key thing here is uh, Amanda's right. The, the thing that Donald Trump likes the most, maybe except for money, is being liked. He likes to be adored by people and he craves respect from those people who have shunned him for right. his entire career in Manhattan. So if now because of talking to Chuck and Nancy, he gets – positive press in the New York Times, that's the best thing. <laughs> and it probably negates the Amnesty Dawn headlines in mm-hmm. Breitbart and other places. All right. SV Date and Amanda Turkle, thanks. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. So much for talking to us. We'll be right back. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Daniel Marins. I'm here. And remotely, (laughs) somewhere else is Jeffrey Young, our health policy expert reporter. Hello, Jeff. Uh, Hey, Arthur. Uh, I'm in in New York City. Hey, I'm walking here. If that (laughs) helps anybody place the, the location. So we have big news this week. A momentous occasion. Senator Bernie Sanders, the independent from Vermont who caucuses with Democrats and who ran for president, he released a Medicare for all bill. In other words, single payer universal universal health insurance. And this is something that he's always done, actually. But what's different this time is that a bunch of other Democrats are like, yeah, good idea. So it's it appears as though the health policy debate in the United States is changing drastically. Uh, Daniel, you spoke to Senator Sanders this week. What what did he say and, and what's going on with his new legislation? Well, I think one of the most interesting takeaways is that he's really especially optimistic about it this time around, not just because of all the support that he's getting, but he thinks that that support was – enabled by circumstances and specifically both the passage of Obamacare, a recognition in his opinion by the public that Obamacare has major shortcomings and and 
a, 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 a clear contrast provided by the Republican efforts to repeal health care, which basically makes people think, well, where do we go from here? And Bernie Sanders says, I'll tell you where we go from here. We go to something like Canada. Hey, that seems nice. Or like Medicare, which we already have. So he takes Medicare and expands it to everyone else. It's currently a, a health insurance program for people who are 65 and older. Jeff Young, how would that work? Is that something that you could just do, like let more people into Medicare? Or would this kind of policy change, You know, assuming that you could just make it law, uh, w- would that be a wrenching, difficult process? Well, yeah. I mean, the mechanics of this are really difficult. And at, at the risk of disappointing or infuriating, infuriating the people who yell at me on Twitter about single payer, um, you know, like any other large policy, it would require an implementation process. And part of that would be dismantling what we already have. Um, but, but, but before getting into that, I just want to say, like, you know, we talk about expanding Medicare to include more people. Uh, Sanders' bill doesn't quite do that. Um, the, the program that he sort of calls Medicare in the bill is Medicare on steroids. You know, right now, if you qualify for Medicare, and like you said, it's people over 65, people with disabilities, and anyone uh, on dialysis qualifies for Medicare as well, no matter what their age. Um, there are monthly premiums, there are deductibles, there's cost sharing when you go to the doctor or the hospital, and that stuff, you know, can can add up to a lot of money, which is why most people on Medicare have uh, supplementary coverage. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, this is quite different. It's bigger, it's more generous, in addition to being available to more people. Um, you know, a, a more incremental way of getting toward the end goal that Sanders is looking for, and, you know, I'd wager that... Uh, that he'd, he'd be totally fine with this if it were structured the right way, is actually something similar to what Hillary Clinton proposed during the presidential election, uh, which is to lower the Medicare age to like 55 and then have anybody under 65 who, who gets it have to pay for it, like a monthly premium like they would for any other insurance program. Um, you know, And that would sort of stand in as the public option was never part of the Affordable Care Act. But getting back to the, the mechanics of it, like, okay, so right now, uh, you know, 90-some percent of Americans have some form of health coverage. Um, and that's that's higher than it was before the ACA, just to, to be perfectly clear about that. It was more like 15, 20 percent. Um, more than half, just over half of those people get insurance from their jobs. Um, and then you've got all the people already on Medicare, Medicaid, and some other government health care programs. American healthcare sucks. Uh, anyone who's ever uh, dealt with it knows that because you know the simplest way of putting it is compared to the rest of the developed world, we pay substantially more for our healthcare and we get worse outcomes. You know, on, on a lot of measures of health, infant mortality is even something that we're falling behind on, if you can imagine. Um, you know, and part of that has to do with the fact that we don't have universal healthcare that starts at birth and goes till death, so you're always covered and you can go to the doctor and the hospital when you need it, right? But because most people already have something, getting single-payer enacted or some other form of truly universal health coverage guaranteed by the government would require persuading all of those people that the new thing is definitely better. Uh, and I, I'm a little skeptical that that's as much of a slam dunk as, uh, as Sanders and other people say, which is not to say it can't be done. This has been, I think, the most uh, prominent criticism of the Sanders proposal, and a lot of it has come from liberals and other Democrats. It's that it's overly ambitious and doesn't 
uh, you know, the just talking about it doesn't account for the fact that actually most people have health insurance that they don't hate, and it would be real difficult to convert them to a government program. And you'd, uh, you know, one thing you might have to do is hike up taxes on people. But I, why is this? Why are we getting so far ahead of the theoretical policy prescription? In Sanders' case, it strikes it in some ways feels like there's a double standard because Republicans spent seven years saying, "Well, we're going to do something else besides Obamacare," and then they pulled a random piece of legislation out of their butts and like almost got it through the Congress. And it seems like what Sanders has done is completely different from that. This is actual legislation that's many pages long and was drafted by experts with input from multiple offices and 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 people outside of Congress is is it not a serious piece of legislation well yeah i mean and 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 i just 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 to go back to what you were saying i don't think double standard is the right way of putting it for a couple of reasons the first thing is that you know that those republican health care bills were totally savaged by everyone so they were certainly held up to quite a standard and, and, and what pretty much everybody except those with a vested interest in passing it had to say is this doesn't work and the reason it didn't work is that they – and this is the key point here. They didn't – they talked about repealing and placing Obamacare for all of those years but they never actually knew what they wanted instead. So they were sort of making it up as they went along, trying to make sure it matched their talking points without and I think giving much thought to the effect it would actually have on the healthcare system and on the people who use it. In the case of Sanders, and this is also true of John Conyers in the House who has a different single-payer bill and which by the way this year uh, crossed the threshold of more than half – of House Democrats are now co-sponsoring that. So it, it's both sides of, the, of Congress right now in the minority party. But the, the point is that single-payer, universal health care, that is a clear goal. And so it's a question of how you get there. The Republicans in Congress this year did not have a clear goal and therefore they could not find a path to get to a destination that was unknown to them. So yes, you're absolutely right. For Sanders and Connors and, and, and both of them have been introducing these bills for years and I think Connors e- even longer um, – it is – it's serious in the sense that they're saying we are laying out our goals. We're laying out a method of doing that that we think can work and that becomes now a starting point for a more serious conversation in greater detail beyond slogans uh, a, 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 among Democrats and the American left about what universal health care would look like. How fast do we do it? What methods do we use to get there? What programs do we use? We can expand Medicaid instead of Medicare, something like that. Um, you know, and, and and I think another really important thing, because Sanders is now, you know, Sanders nearly won the Democratic nomination, right? Uh, he's very famous now. Uh, he's got a huge following. A lot of people like and trust what he has to say. So even though he's not actually a Democrat, what Sanders has done here, I think, is established these kind of leftward bounds of American healthcare policy, right? No one could come out with something more radical than Sanders' bill. Um, well, sorry, if someone did and other Democrats didn't support it, right, they could no longer accuse of be, being sellouts if they support the Sanders bill because they're now genuinely supporting a real single-payer bill. I, I have a question for Daniel about the the politics of it because the criticism that it's overly ambitious, you have to do something that's more practical or plausible uh, is interesting after we just saw somebody win the presidency with a bunch of pie in the sky, contradictory and impossible promises. So you know, wh- why shouldn't Bernie Sanders go through that? And what does he say to 
to that criticism. I mean, he he sort of says. I, I think that Jeff, what Jeff, the way Jeff framed it is exactly right. He he basically looks at this as I'm not going to negotiate with myself. I'm going to put out my maximalist formula. And I sort of said to him, well, if even when Democrats have power, they have a really hard time with this, and they end up going with more transitional type things. He's like, well, I'm not going to entertain that right now. But I don't think that it. I think that it. When you look at the way that he defended the ACA, for example, going on the road, actually, I, I'm frankly, unique in Congress, having the, having the, I think, fame and political action committee budget to, well, maybe not that part unique, but it certainly helped to to really take his case to places like Kentucky and West Virginia. Yeah, he's, he's ginned up support for this all years. Right. So he, he, I, I think that th- there were some who have doubted in his past, in the past, his pragmatism on these kind of bridge matters. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot more evidence to suggest now, including in the way that he spoke to to me about it, that that he is really um, pretty open to, to to sort of getting there one way or another. And and I think you know the other piece of this is just that the this has opened up, as Jeff said, a whole space to Sanders' right. So now all of these proposals that were once seen as perhaps more more uh, out of bounds have become mainstream. You have a figure like Chris Murphy, a senator from Connecticut who has proposed a Medicare buy-in that he's now calling a better route to single payer. But ironically, he didn't sign on to Sanders' bill. You've got Brian Schatz from Hawaii who did sign on to Sanders' bill and is proposing a Medicaid buy-in. You have uh, Debbie Stabenow has has support for a bill that would lower the Medicare. Uh, she's from Michigan, lower the Medicare age to fifty five, and and these are all pe- these are all now live options. You have figures like Joe Manchin from West Virginia saying, you know what, let's have a hearing on this, or or John Tester and uh, from Montana. So uh, the 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 biggest sign, I mean, aside from the polling, which is pretty complicated, even though there are some good signs for single payer there, the. The politicians in Washington seem, including in some conservative areas, seem to have their finger on something as changing. I have a final question for Jeff. Uh, you followed what Republicans have been up to. They didn't just give up after their Senate version of health care uh, repeal and replace went kaput. They've been doing something else. But it seems like, uh, you know, relative to the, the energy on the Democratic side, Republicans might be losing steam. Is their effort to repeal Obamacare basically toast at this point? I think what we're hearing right now is the death rattle of Obamacare repeal. And for people who don't know what we're talking about, Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy in the Senate have a bill they're trying to push that would essentially take all the money that's going out to the states for Medicaid and uh, health insurance subsidies and some other stuff, shrink it, block grant it, and then let the states do whatever they want. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons that aren't even worth getting into about why that doesn't work probably. Um, but the more important point is that no one's interested. I mean if they walked into Mitch McConnell's office like five minutes from now with 51 votes in their pocket, I guess he'd let them vote on it. But you know, everything, public statements by Senate Republican leadership, they just don't want to do this again. I don't know, even know if Trump cares anymore. Um, and this is important, but the special procedural rules that were going to allow Republicans to move uh, an Affordable Care Act repeal bill through the Senate with just 51 votes expire at the end of this month. So that's, what is that, 16 days? There's no way. I mean, if I get proved wrong, bring me back on here and and yell at me. But like, I don't know, man. If you're chewing your fingernails about this at home, you probably don't need to. 
All right. So so to recap, Democrats have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren with Medicare for all. Republicans have Lindsey Graham, Bill Cassidy, block grants and a parliamentarian. I think we'll <laughs> leave it there. Jeffrey Young, Daniel Marin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And we'll Thank be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Zach Carter. Hi, everybody. And Paul Blumenthal. Hello. And we have the funnest thing to talk about, Equifax. Yay. Everybody's favorite word. The Equifax credit reporting company. For horses. That, no, it's not for horses. It's just called Equifax for some reason. Uh but that is a good point, though. I stole that joke from our producer, Zach Young. He said it earlier. It's a really good joke, though. <laughs> Equifax, the credit reporting company that allowed itself to be hacked earlier this summer and thereby compromised the personal information of more than half of the adult U.S. population, 143 million people. That's a lot of people, folks. This is like Wells Fargo-level incompetence. So if you are an adult, this is you? And that means criminals can either have or can purchase your social security number, address, name, in some cases, driver's license and credit card number. And a lot more. Nice one, Equifax. You had one job to not let that happen since you're a credit monitoring company that monitors everyone's credit. So this is one thing that's actually difficult about this story is that it requires a big step back. And that's what I thought. We would do here, Zach. Why is there such a thing as a credit monitoring company? Like, what what is going on here? So, these companies, like Equifax, there there are three big ones, uh, are ostensibly tasked with documenting and then demonstrating to others whether individuals are good at paying back loans, whether they are a good credit risk. Um, This is uh, largely a useless function in society. People who pay back their loans are people who have the money to pay back loans. People who don't pay back their loans are people who don't have the money to pay back loans. Uh, And over time, this uh, useless function – um, in which is supposedly exists to help banks underwrite, uh, you know, their their lending uh, practices, has expanded into all sorts of other areas to just determine whether someone is uh, a good person who should be tasked with some sort of responsibility, whether it's renting a house, getting a job. All the time, different people in American life ask for your credit rating, and your credit rating is just this number that sums up your entire life and character uh, into three digits. And uh, obviously, that's an impossible task. Economically, it doesn't serve any purpose. And now we also see that it is uh, extremely dangerous to have this information centralized in one place. So Equifax, along with Experian and TransUnion, are parasites that, uh, without your consent, compile information about you and then sell it to other companies such as lenders and employers who use you know their proprietary algorithm or score to decide your worth as a human being. They're creepy spies. I think Paul can tell us more about that. Paul, you are looking into the history of how these uh, companies came to be and what they do. What have you found out? Yeah, so, I mean, 
Uh, credit reporting kind of started a long time ago, back in the 1800s. And it really, I mean, it, to understand why consumers or custom, they're cut what they call their customers, which is us. You're even not, though we're we not, are not their customers. customers we are not their consumers. Yeah. The real customers and consumers are businesses. And so, you know, the ordinary grocery shop or a furniture store back in the day, you know, they wanted to know whether they could open an account for somebody who wanted to like borrow money from the local store to buy something and pay it back on credit. So they needed some way to do it. So these sort of local credit reporting bureaus started up. They were mostly spread all throughout the country. Some cities would have like dozens of them and they would compile information Uh, and they served the business community. They did not serve the consumers. They did not serve people seeking credit. Those are people to essentially be spied on and to find out everything they can about their lives. And, you know, this involved back then a lot of, uh, you know, moral policing even. And you know, but they, they actually spied. They they didn't just look at they, they numbers on a spied. computer. So I mean, like Elliot Ness, who's like famous for you know uh, toppling beer barons or yeah, whatever. Al Capone and Al Capone. Uh, you know, he originally started working for this company called Retail Credit Company back in the early 20th century. Retail Credit Company is Equifax. They changed their name in the 1970s after a series of scandals. So eventually, people started paying more attention to the fact that uh, they were being spied on and investigated just for living their lives and attempting to buy refrigerators. And in the 1950s, um, you know, what really started to happen was the computerization revolution. And there was sort of this uh, debate about who was going to computerize these kind of records first. Was it going to be the banks or was it going to be the credit reporting agencies or companies, I guess? And the banks didn't do it. The credit reporting companies did, the first of whom being uh, the retail credit company. And then in the 60s, there was this like explosion of interest in the issue of privacy created by the computerization of data. And congressmen were worried about this uh, new federal database that was being created. Like, oh, my God, they're putting everything on computers about us, the government. And then they asked some government researchers about this. And they were the government researchers were like, well, uh, the private industry is doing this. Why shouldn't we? Like insurance companies, credit reporting companies, and congressmen were like, what? (laughs) They had no idea. How are they doing this without uh, asking us? So they started holding hearings about it, and they found out all this horrible stuff about these companies were basically – investigating people and, you know, saying, uh, oh, this woman might be a lesbian. Don't lend to her. Or like this person supports radical black activists, you know, like don't lend to him. That kind of crazy stuff. So they passed a bill to uh, set some restrictions on what kind of information could be collected. And what's that bill called? It's the Fair Credit Reporting Act. That's a landmark. 1970. It is yeah. a landmark legislation. And there was a lot of other landmark consumer legislation around this time being pushed by like Nader's Raiders, Public Citizen, U.S. Perg, all of these groups back yeah, in the we 70s. We got our seatbelts around then. That's, yeah? That sort of created uh, this system of uh, a more organized structure of how to collect credit information to judge people. And then in the 1980s, in the merger wave, you know, you had these few big uh, credit reporting companies that had it computerized. And because it was very expensive, they were just able to buy up every local credit reporting company. And uh, along with that, and that sort of aided the credit card revolution and the extension of credit and 
mortgage-backed securities came Metaphysical that. transformation yes. of human beings the securitization of basically everything. Um, composed of money. So, That's nice. <laughs> it's a long and interesting history, and that's how we got three companies. Let me bring us to today. What happened this week is we found out about their breach, and then there was a wave of outrage that I thought uh, went very backwards because it was over the terms of use in the uh, – uh, basically the terms of use in the product that Equifax was offering to people as a remedy for its own horrible mistake – and it contained an arbitration clause, which is something that we've talked about on this podcast. It, it basically prevents people from being able to sue or join a class action lawsuit, and they're buried in fine print. You don't know about it, and then if you want your day in court, you can't have it. People were mad about that, but Paul, you and I did a story about something else in the terms of use, which was that if you sign up for this free remedy, you had to give them your credit card number, and then unless you proactively canceled after a trial period, they would charge you. So this company is so depraved that they compromised the personal information of 143 million people and then tried to turn them all into customers by tricking them. Harvest them for money. Yeah. I mean they they saw a scandal as a marketing opportunity. Uh, I mean they've backed off now. They've changed well, so, their terms of service. Well, they did. So over the weekend, I kept checking the terms of service and they uh, – it was dated September 6th, which you know they put it together with this plan – after they announced their hack the next day. And so then they changed it on the 8th after we did our story. And I emailed them immediately, hey, you changed your terms. Why would you do that? And will people have to provide a credit card? And they didn't respond. They didn't respond for three days until Monday when they admitted that, uh, no, okay, we won't. We, they, they didn't admit. I mean, they reversed their policy, and so they won't ask for a credit card. So Elizabeth Warren and members of Congress have pointed to the arbitration clause as something – because the the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is a government agency, unlike Equifax, uh, that does protect consumers, has been trying to deal with these arbitration clauses and essentially outlaw them um, so that if if you get wronged, you can join with other people to sue the person who wronged you and give you a day in court. That rule is coming into effect this month. Yes. It would not cover this particular uh, act, but – I think this is generally beside the point. The response to this so far from the Democratic Party and from people in Congress um, has been, you know, these these credit rating spy companies should be better regulated. And I just think the reasonable, rational response to to a problem like this is not is not to tweak the edges here. Like there's, these companies should not exist. You, this uh, practice should be illegal. People should not be going around spying on people. Incidental point you just made, they pass themselves off as agencies or bureaus, which which implies a government function, and they're they're not. Right. They're, they're not. They're, they're, the not. they're, they're they are private sector spies who are turning your life into three digits. Uh, th- this should this this practice should not exist. So Warren co-sponsored legislation with Brian Schatz, who is making a, you know a senator from. Hawaii was making a big fuss on Twitter about this to help consumers correct errors in their credit reports. Why Why isn't the thing you're asking for simply the abolition of these companies? I, I agree. I think that's what they should do. I mean, I think that uh, some of the consumer advocates that I've talked to say that, you know, this ser- they do serve a purpose in, you know, you can easily go move from one city to the other and, you know, your credit history follows you. The problem is, is that obviously, like, these credit histories still have inaccuracies in them. People still get screwed all the time and that banks can probably do this themselves anyways. When you get a loan from a bank, for instance, for a mortgage, they ask you for payment stubs and uh, statements 
So they find out exactly how much money you have. Well, sometimes they do. There was they, this they whole mortgage asked. thing they did where they didn't well, do right. that. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. The, the point is they Just banks, like a decade or two. There. Banks uh, have ways of checking this information. They also use your, your credit score, which if it's a, a bad number, they'll say, well, we're going to give you a worse interest rate. Why? I mean, could they not lend if they didn't have the credit score Well, they component? could certainly co- – compile this information themselves they also have like their own skin in the game i mean they're the ones who have the deposits that will get lost you know they're the ones who uh have shareholders and money that they would lose if they start lending to people with bad credit uh if these credit reporting agencies didn't exist if you got rid of could you get a credit card banking banking has been going on for roughly five thousand years credit reporting agencies have existed for like 150 so Banking would continue if these things disappeared so or if I, they were reformed. I just don't understand why – The you, question of whether the easy credit that we all get nowadays would exist. And I guess we could argue for another like 10 or 15 minutes about whether it's right to have such easy credit. We, there are also questions like why are there private sector lenders that need to be addressed while we're talking about reforming these things? Why doesn't the Fed just lend to people directly? These are all complicated. But for now, I, it's very clear these I, countries these, – these companies are so depraved – they can't companies. They, they get they get your information wrong and there is no accountability me- mechanism for this secret yeah, you have information. to argue with them for you know 6 months and there's no way to prove it otherwise and they don't really care because right. you're not their consumer you're not their customer they care about businesses who pay them money make, yeah propose abolishing them and make them explain why they're good that's the Arthur Delaney suggestion i mean i think that there's a like one more additional point which is just like you know, 143 million people's data got sent out there. Like, Congress should also address this privacy issue. You know, like, one of these days, what if Facebook or Google gets hacked and all of our emails and every message you've ever sent to anybody gets sent out there? I mean, I think that this raises that issue as well. I think people should just brace themselves for that and let it wash over them horribly. We'll all live through that wonderful Black Mirror episode. Embrace the abyss, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this week we were joined by HuffPost reporters Amanda Turkle, S.V. Date, Daniel Marins, Jeffrey Young, Paul Blumenthal, and Zach Carter. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 